Hi, I'm Laura, and I'm a workaholic. I had been working in the software industry for 16 years, selling multi-million dollar deals, so it was high pressure and high reward. I had two small children at home, and I was pregnant with my third. I was trying to be superwoman, living the dream of having a high-powered career and nice cars and vacations, and juggling a home life, too. Peregrine Systems self-destructed while I was at home on maternity leave. Even though I was enjoying being at home with my baby boy, I was determined to find another job. It never occurred to me that God might not want me working anymore. I was a success. This is what I did. I took a job a few months later with another software company that was up for sale, and I knew this job would only last about a year, but I was desperate, so I took it. When the expected purchase came, I was let go a few months after the transition. Again, I did not stop to ask God for direction. Oh, I prayed all the time for a job, for good interviews and great opportunities, but not for his guidance or how to know his will for my life. I was full steam ahead trying to pursue my life of materialism and worldly success. Eventually, I took a job with PeopleSoft, a $2 billion company with a great reputation and too big to get bought up. Perfect, or so I thought. After a great year, PeopleSoft was the victim of a hostile takeover. Three jobs in three years. I was finally starting to wonder if God was trying to tell me something. Could it be that a sales career was not his plan for me? I felt beat up and stressed out. And I began to think that if I stayed on this path, it would lead to my own death or at least physical exhaustion. I finally started to slow down enough to gain God's perspective, and I decided not to go back to work. It took nearly two years to get used to not working. I took on Romans 12, 1 and 2 as my life verse. I was renewing my mind with three Bible studies a week. I was choosing to be a living sacrifice for God rather than a sacrifice on the altar of materialism and success. I spend my life now raising my kids and discipling other young people. I'm passionate about the Bible and teaching God's Word to adults and teens. Our family has never felt deprived of anything by the reduced income. God has always provided what we need. I may still be a workaholic, but I'm doing kingdom work now, and this work comes with the best boss ever. God has given me peace and rest, and I've never once woken up and wished that I could go sell software that day. But I have been grateful for a righteous God who put me on the right path. Well, I want to welcome you all to our sermon series, God Is. If this is your very first time here for this sermon series, you haven't been here for the other parts of it, let me help spin you up briefly on what we're doing and why we're going through it so you can be up with everybody else as we continue going this weekend, all right? For, for the past several weekends, we have been going through the book of Romans, and in doing so, we've been trying to find some of the attributes of God, the things that God says about himself. And in going through Romans and identifying these things, we've been learning much about who God is. And that's the important part for us. We want to know what God has to say about himself. And so we started at the very beginning of Romans, the first chapter. And in in walking through, we learned that God is a good God. And everything that he creates, everything he does is good and good news. But we also know that while God may be good, and in God's goodness, that's perfection, we're not perfect. We're actually a little less than God's goodness, quite a bit less than God's goodness. And God has to deal with the fact that we are not good as he's good. And that's called justice. And so the second weekend, we learned that God is a just God. He has to deal with the things in the world that aren't good. It's the only way for him to retain his goodness. Now, that would be a big issue because all of us would then be under judgment, as we are under judgment then 
by God's goodness and by his justice. Luckily, God chooses to act in his love with perfect grace. What that means then is that while we deserve judgment, God gives us grace instead. What a wonderful thing. Then we have an opportunity to have a relationship with him, be outside of his judgment, because he chose to take all the punishment that was for us and to pour it onto his son Jesus so that we could live free from it. But life isn't perfect from that point. It doesn't always end up perfect. And we see that we don't always react faithfully to God. Well, praise the Lord that we learned the next week that God is faithful even when we are not. And he doesn't change his faithfulness based upon how we act, how we respond to things. And then last week, we learned about God and his majesty, his kingliness, his his authority over all of creation. Now, so you're spun up a little bit on kind of where we've been, and that covers the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Now, whether you've been here and you've been kind of going through these with us, or or you're new, you, you might have noticed something about that, what I just walked through. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, of which there are 16 chapters, Paul talks almost nothing about commands, nothing about what we should go and do. It's actually a little bit unlike the New Testament books. There's, there's nothing in there telling us how we should go behave, how we should go act, what we're supposed to do in light of these things. In fact, I went back through to check this out this last week and counted every place that there was a specific instruction, a, a specific and direct command to the readers of Romans. I, I went back and checked that out in the first 11 chapters and found that there were less than 10 direct commandments. In fact, by some measures, depending on how you judge it, maybe less than five really direct commandments that people are supposed to follow direct instructions. But what we're going to see is that tonight we're going to begin walking through the next part of this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Everything is about to change. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and pull them out. I'm going to be using one of the ones that should be in the seatbacks in front of you. Um, It's going to be on page 875 for those of you who want to follow along. Romans chapter 12, I'll be beginning in, in verses 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will accept. When you think of what he has done for you, is this too much to ask? Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. Now, these two verses are going to be pivotal in the book of Romans because it takes us from the, basically the explanation portion of the whole book into the instructional portion. Any football fans? Anybody here like football? Anybody? Okay, I, I grew up loving football. Diehard Bears fan, by the grace of God. And um, I'll tell you that my dad would coach me through, and as I was kind of sitting on, on the couch next to him watching the games, uh, he would explain how football works. Did anybody have a similar interaction like this with a parent or a loved one or a friend? Or maybe it was your spouse and you first got married and that person helped you learn how this works. Uh, Watching the game, I'd ask, well, why do they have the ball now? And what happens next? And my dad explained to me that, that this team carries the ball and their job is to get it down the field and into the end zone to score a touchdown. That's worth six points. And now on occasion, it doesn't work out like they thought and they might have to kick. And so he explains all the rules and how the whole thing works out. And he walked me through all the pieces. He would even on occasion tell me about, well, you know, this guy used to play for a different team, but now he's on this team and it's really good. And that coach, he's really good, but he won't come out on the field because coaches aren't allowed on the field. They tell people what to do when they're there. The whole point is he explained how football worked. And this is all the way up to my life until I hit sixth grade. 
When I got to sixth grade, I, I, I tried out for the football team, and it was actually a community one where every little kid gets on. And so uh, my dad was one of the assistant coaches to kind of help out along with that. And I remember the day that I went with my mom to go pick up the, uh, the gear, you know, the, the gear pickup day to go to that big shed and get all the, the pads and everything. Man, I felt like a warrior. It was awesome. So I get home. I put all this stuff on, don all the gear, and I just literally, I put on the shoulder pads and the, the helmet, and I put on the girdle. I still don't even know what a girdle is. And all, all the gear that they have, all those little pads, and I just ran as hard as I could into the wall in our kitchen, all right? And my mom was like, oh, Rich, no, 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 no. Go run into the trees. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And so I went outside, ran to the trees, and I, I have no, no side effects at all from the tree running. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I loved it. I was so all intense about it. And my dad came home that night, and, and in the backyard, he decided to start to train me to be a linebacker, okay? You, can you tell? Linebacker, right? Okay, anyway. So he, um, he, he put me back there, and he says, okay, okay Richie. Uh, you can't call me Richie. He does. Uh, and, and he says, put your foot here, and I'll put your other foot here. Okay, now up on the balls of your feet. Okay, and now, now squat a little, and he kind of held my waist and pushed me down like this. He was, okay, now hands out, and now you got to go like this, and you got to watch, have a mean look on your face. And he was telling me all the things I've got to do. Now, if the quarterback gets the ball and starts going that way, you start going this way. And he literally like picked up my legs and kind of showed me how to do it and he practiced it and he started to instruct me how to play football. That day, everything changed with me in regards to what I knew about football. It went from my dad explaining how football works to instructing me in how to play football. You you see that? You get just a very little subtle difference, but explaining how it works to instructing how to play That's exactly what Paul is doing right now in Romans when we get to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, in light of everything that I have explained to you, now that you understand the narrative, the story of how God has brought us to where we are and how his grace has redeemed us and how we can have new life and how he's going to be faithful when we're not and he is always good and in power, in light of all of that, here's what you go and do. Here's what you're going to go do. Remember that I said that I, I, I kind of counted through, and by best measures, probably maybe closer to five-ish direct commands in chapters 1 through 11? Well, in the next section, which is about three and a half chapters, we're going to kind of go through this weekend, there are 91 direct commandments. That is almost two perverse. And so we're going to go through all of those this week. I'm just kidding. We're not going to go through all those this weekend. Um, luckily, Paul broke it down. He broke it down into three main categories. And so for the sake of time, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through those major categories and what Paul was trying to say to the believer. This is to the Christian who wants to follow God, who now knows all of the good things about the story and now wants to implement it, put it into practice. And so Paul gives us three categories for right living for the Christian. It's right living in regards to the body of Christ, the church. Right living in regards to the world, and right living in regards to other Christians. Get that? Right living in regards to the church, right living in regards to the world, and right living in regards to other Christians. And so that's what we're going to go this weekend. So if you've got your Bibles open to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're just going to go right into the next verse, starting in in verse 3. I'm going to read this out loud. As God's messenger, I give each of you this warning. Be honest in your estimate of yourselves, measuring your value by how much faith God has given you. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has special functions, so it is with Christ's body. 
We are all parts of his one body, and each of us has different work to do. And since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other, and each of us needs all the others. Anyone heard this before? The idea that the church is supposed to be the body of Christ? And anybody heard this idea? I've heard this many times in my life, and I'll tell you, for years, I think I got it very wrong. Because this was my association. My association with, with, with that section, that, that portion. And there's, it's said many times. Paul uses that example in many other places in, in, in the New Testament. The idea of being a body. And I kind of pictured a body, right? All the parts and pieces, arms, legs, fingers. And I thought, okay, so this is the members of the body. Some translations will say that. This is the parts of the body. So that's like the fingers, hands, feet, legs, arms. Okay. And so if we're the body of Christ, we all need to be working and functioning together, right? In, in order to work. Here's the issue, though. I always kind of associated it as those kind of parts, and, and I, I couldn't help but think about the guy who doesn't have his left ring finger. You don't anybody know anyone who, who, who like lost a toe or a finger somewhere in some accident or something? Now, you know what happens when, when somebody loses a finger? Like, like, let's say the left middle finger. Let's just talk about that. The left ring finger. Do you know what happens? They send them off to some place where they're not allowed to be part of society any longer, and they can't function properly, can't do all the things that normal per- Of course, that's not the way it works. Somebody who doesn't have one little finger, they find a replacement. They might get a prosthetic on there, and I'll tell you right now, it really doesn't, over the course of the rest of their life, impact terribly the rest of living. There can be joy, there can be work accomplished, there can be all kinds of things done. And so I always internalize in my mind, okay, part of the body of Christ. So I'm one of those pieces. If I'm not there, it's really not that big of a deal. They'll just find a replacement or learn to live without me. I think a lot of Christians live that way in practice, whether or not they'd say it out loud. They think, well, I don't really need to be part of the body of Christ like that. I'm just, I'm just a finger. It's not a big deal. I mean, there's, there's four more left there. They can still make a fist, do things. It's going to be fine. But you know what? I've, I've recently begun to look at that as different parts of the body. What if the parts that Paul's referring to could be more likened to the stomach or, or the lungs or the brain? Imagine if, if your brain just took the day off. Some spouses out there turning to your husband like, yeah, that happened to my husband today. <laughs> what, what would happen if your stomach just stopped, stopped working? That's a big deal, right? You want me to tell you, tell you the short answer? You would die. If your lungs just gave out, you would die. If your heart stopped beating, you, you would die. You see, we are so needed in the body of Christ. I think that it'd be better for us to think of ourselves in that way. When we don't interact with the body of Christ in the way that we should, it's like denying the rest of the body, the heart. Denying the rest of the body, the stomach that gives nourishment to the rest. In fact, it's not only devastating for the person not connected, but it can actually devastate the body as well. It can devastate the body. But it is beautiful when this is done the right way. Have you ever seen Christian community at its best? Where people are living amongst one another with such love and adoration, respect and honoring and, and, and the right kind of iron sharpening iron and the things taking place with accountability and worship and glory to God. What a beautiful picture it is. We oftentimes talk about community and we kind of limit it to being just the scope of this small context of our local church or our small group or something like that. But when this is working at its greatest, it's affecting the global, universal, big capital C church. My wife and I went on a, a trip to a national park a couple of uh, 
falls ago, a couple years ago. And this was one of our things we always loved doing. We loved going out to national parks and hiking around. So we decided to go down to Zion National Park, which is about three hours outside of Las Vegas. And it was the first trip we were going to take our, our little uh, daughter on. She was about nine months old at the time. And uh, so I was putting all the gear, packing it all together. And I remembered one bag for me, one bag for Laura, one bag for Bethany. And it didn't quite work like that. Um, because I am a full-size person, and my bag's like this big for like four days. She is a not full-size person, Bethany, and she has like several bags that are like the size of me. Anybody ever kid and all of a sudden realize that you need to travel somewhere, all the stuff you need to bring with you? It's ridiculous. And so uh, we were trying to kind of survey all the gear we had and discern the pieces we needed to take with us. And the most worthless piece that I found there was the pack-and-play. Anybody know what the pack-and-play is? Pack-and-play. It's like that little portable crib right? For the baby to sleep. And that kid can sleep in a drawer. And the kid's not going to know. But, uh, but my wife did not appreciate that suggestion. Um, and so, so I said, okay, okay, we'll, we'll deal with the pack and play. But this is a lot just to take on the plane, just to have, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. So what I did is I, I, I searched around on- online for churches, EFCA churches, Evangelical Free Church of America, churches in Las Vegas. That, that's the group that we're associated with, who we're connected with at this church. And so I found uh, the, the nearest one to the airport in Las Vegas, and I just called him up. And I was like, hey, so I'm a Christian who goes to an EFCA church in Naperville, Illinois, and uh, we're going to be down there for a week. Just wanted to know if anybody might have a pack and play we could borrow. And the guy was like, uh, yeah, uh, how about if I just get your email address and I'll contact you. And so I was like, oh, I'm never going to hear this guy again. Gave my email address, hung up. By the end of the day, that guy had received seven families offering their pack and play so we could use them for the week while we were out there. And so we picked it up right then. We brought it back. It was, it was awesome. That's the body of Christ. Man, I didn't even know this guy. He loves Jesus and so do I. And those other seven families, the other six were kind of like, oh, I wish they used ours. Like, how cool is that? That is so cool. You know, here's another one. Uh, Laura and I, uh, last fall, we went to go uh, to a wedding. I was in, standing in a wedding for, uh, I was the best man in a wedding, actually, for one of my dear friends. And it was down in Arizona, Phoenix. And so Laura and I were trying to figure out the, the cost for, you know, lodging down there. It's expensive. It would have been like 600 bucks for us to stay down there. And so um, he found out about that and told another guy who told another guy, another guy, I mean, someone who was just like connected way down the line. And we got a call from this guy saying, hey, so you're a couple of Christians who are coming into town and I need a place to stay? I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, uh, yeah, you know what? Christians don't pay for lodging where I live. Not in my town. And I was like, that's okay. I felt maybe it's a little weird. Is this okay? But we did it. We went by it. We got it. We made sure it was all good. We went. It was, it was cool. This family turned their home into a bed and breakfast. They gave us a couple of rooms. When we got there, there was a basket full of fruit and candies and stuff for the baby. Okay? Um, every morning, they woke up before us to make us breakfast. Like, I, I, I was so taken back by, by the Seton family, who, who I, I may never, I'll probably never see them again this side of eternity. And I definitely never saw them before. But just because they love God, they said, hey, no, 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 no. No, Christians, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. We, we invite you in. You're part of the family. You are part of the body of Christ. And when it's working right, oh, it's such a beautiful thing. Let me read verse 13 of chapter 12 to you. When God's children are in need, be the one to help them out and get into the habit of inviting guests home for dinner or if they need lodging for the night. See, got a verse. Right there. It is beautiful when this is done in the right way. You know, there's no special, exclusive, elite club of Christians who do these things and everybody else doesn't. We just love each other like a family. And we take joy in doing this. 
The coolest thing about those two stories I just explained, the families who stepped in to help us out had no knowledge of our existence before we asked for their help. They were overjoyed to help us. It wasn't one of those like, man, someone's going to have our pack and play. It's not going to be taking up that space in the closet for that week. I mean, they were so overjoyed to be able to participate in the family of God. Isn't that awesome? We get to have that. That's beautiful. Right living in regards to the body of Christ, the corporate body of Christ. That's the first category Paul covers. The second category that Paul covers of the right living is in regards to governing authority. To governing authority. He breaks this part down into two subcategories. Governing authority and others. So basically it's the whole world. So it breaks it down to governing authority and those who are just non-believers but also in the world. This is how you interact with those who are in the world. Uh, And I'm going to start reading this in, in chapter 13, verse 1. Obey the government whenever you agree with what they say. I'm sorry. I didn't, I think I said that wrong. Um, (laughs) Some of you were like, this church is awesome. (laughs) All right. That's, that's, That's not what it says. Let me, read, let me read what it actually says. Obey the government. Pause. For God is the one who put it there. All governments, all governments have been placed in power by God. Now, the truth is, I think the Bible's really clear, like when it comes to the whole Republican and Democrat debate, which is the right way to go. I think that God would definitely want us to vote. I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna do that. Here's, here's, the, here's the big deal. There actually are some really simple principles that Paul just makes very clear right here in the way that we view government. Let me, let me say one just like this. Christians approach government differently than non-Christians. Christians should deal with government differently than non-Christians. Because Christians look at the hierarchy in the way that Paul is saying it is right here, and it goes just like this. It's very simple. There's God, ultimate authority. Then there's the government, and then there's us. Then there's you and me. God, government, us. And if ever one of those gets out of whack, the whole thing is ugly. The whole thing falls apart for us because God is an ultimate authority, the government is under him, and we are under the government. That's the way that it operates. We need to look at it differently than other people look at it. Now, now some people have asked in the really practical questions, now, so how does this work out? We, we obey the government, but does that mean like we shouldn't, we shouldn't vote for one candidate over the other? No, of course, of course you should do that. I think the government makes that not only allowance, but actually requests that citizens would do that. Okay, uh, well, should we voice our opinions when we think that something is wrong that the government has done? You know what I think? I think because we're Americans, I think yes. Do you want to know why? Because it's part of the governing authority. The governing authority has told us that it is right and appropriate for when we have issues with the government, we can even vocally disagree. Now, it should be done with honor. It should be done with respect and dignity. It should be ultimately honoring God. But because our government says, you can voice your concerns, we are right in the law to voice concerns. We just need to make sure we're always doing it under God also and honoring him in in our heart about all of it. Did you get that? See, the, the, the reason that some people have so many issues about government and how this all works is because they don't know what to do. And if you have this perfect kind of hierarchy, the God, and then you've got government and us, it's kind of clean. The trouble is whenever government moves out and tries to shift above God and telling us to do something that God tells us to not do. Has this ever happened in the Bible? Yeah, a few places it's happened in the Bible. And any time that it's happened, we don't have this smug response. Like, we don't have to answer to the government. We answer to God. Our response is, you know what? 
our highest authority is God. And if God says that I'm allowed to pray to him, like, like I'm thinking Daniel, Lion's Den, Old Testament stuff, right? And, and, and the, the governing authority is saying that I'm not allowed to pray to God. Well, God's higher authority, I'm going to do the same practice I always had done, and I'm, I'm going to leave, leave it up to God. What, what happens? There's no angst. There's no anger there. There's no frustration with it. It's knowing that God is ultimately in authority. And every single government that's ever existed has been put in authority by God for his reasons that admittedly we will not always understand. I think most often we won't understand. But just a, a little snippet that I've, I've learned about God and governing authorities, especially as I've studied history and the Bible and even the modern times that we're in right now, I believe that every nation always gets as their leader exactly who they deserve. Always. I mean, God's good. He knows what he's doing. He gives every nation exactly who he deserves. And it's our job to honor our government, to pray for the leaders of our government. And that, 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 that's something that sets us apart from the rest of the world. That even when we might disagree with certain policies or administrations, we will still honor God by obeying the government. Are, are you the person who, when the cops aren't around, you know, goes way faster down that road than the speed limit allows? Are you? Are you the one who, you know, no one really is going to check into this part of the taxes. I kind of gave that much away at a nonprofit organization. I, you know, it's just pretty close. Is that you? Because there is, Paul continues on here, and let me read verse 2. So those who refuse to obey the laws of the land are refusing to obey God, and punishment will follow. If we refuse to obey the government, we're, we're refusing to obey God. Now, some question, well, what do you do when the government's telling you to do something that's sin? Well, we kind of already covered that, but just to make it really clear, God is our highest authority, and we obey the government up through everything until sin. And I think that that's what honors God. We should look different than the rest of the world in the way that we deal with governing authorities. The third category that Paul brings up, the third category of the right living is right living in regards to other Christians. And the way Paul actually describes it, he says, right living in regards to other Christians, both weak and strong. And the reason he says this is not, not to develop classism, okay? These Christians who are really strong, these Christians who are just the weak ones, he's not doing that at all. He's trying to address a specific issue going on in the Roman church. And here, let's explain what that issue is. It's, it's, it's right there in the text. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it out loud. Accept Christians who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it is all right to eat anything, but another believer who has a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Now, for the record, I am a carnivore. I did not fight my way to the top of the food chain to eat rabbit food. Okay? In fact, my stance that I maintain is that, you know, how are we not supposed to eat animals? I feel like um, if I'm not supposed to eat animals, then why did God make cows out of steak? <laughs> right? Pretty good question. But this really isn't about food, okay? It's really not about food. And actually, Paul will, will hammer that over and over and over in that passage. He'll say, listen, this isn't about what you eat. It's not about what you drink. That's not the point. Here's what it comes back to. The Romans in this day were struggling with something. The Roman Christians knew that much of the meat in distribution had been offered to idols and sacrificed to false gods. 
This had, been, this had happened in the Old Testament days as well, back in the book of Daniel chapter 1, that it happened that the meat was out there being sacrificed to false gods. And so the Christians are saying, well, hold on, I think that if that's the case, I need to be really careful to not eat any meat at all, just so I don't ever touch the meat that might have been offered up to a false god. Okay? Now, Paul says, listen, it's not an issue. Listen, listen, God knows what's going on. You're allowed to eat food. You're allowed to eat any kind of food. That's not the issue here. But he does also recognize that our conscience may may be something really heavy on our hearts when it comes to a situation like that. And so instead of saying, hey, don't worry about it, just do do what the rule is, he says, listen, if your conscience is eating you alive, well, then don't do it. Just don't do it. In fact, not only that, but if you are a person who has no trouble eating meat, don't do it around these other people these other Christians, because you might cause them to stumble in their own hearts. And you need to love them and honor them enough that you'd even change your diet because you care for them. That's how you need to live with other Christians. And that's what he's talking about there. I think perhaps more modern contextualization will be talking about alcohol, okay? Probably a little more modern contextualization. Um, I I was in the Marines, and uh, I did a booze cruise once around South America. I mean, I was trained and taught to, to love alcohol and to abuse it poorly, Okay? And so I know now in my life that I have given over the things that used to be on the throne in my life. I've tossed those down. I've, I've offered God to sit on the throne, him to be the Lord of my life. I've decided that, you know what, I, I'm, just, I'm just not going not gonna to do that. That's going to be my, my, my main focus is not to really be around alcohol. And the truth is, I know so many people have come out of that background and it's been such a hard thing. I'm just going to not for their sake. Even though the Bible says that it's okay to have alcohol on occasion, as long as you don't get drunk, I, I think that it's important to see that ultimately, it's not about food or drink. It's about caring more about the other person and caring about their hearts. Paul addresses this in this entire chapter, chapter 14. I'm going to read verse 17 to you out loud. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God, and other people will approve of you too. So then, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. But here's the final question. What does this have to do with God? So, great, Paul. We know that this is what you've explained to us about the whole world and life and everything. That's wonderful. And we also now know that there's a few areas that we need to be living a little differently and we need to be focused on an instruction changing in our lifestyle. So we've got that. But what does it have to do with God? This seems like it's a little bit incongruous with what's going on with who God really is. And here's the deal. God is a righteous God. It means that God is right in his living. God is morally right, justified in completion. Have you ever been to a grocery store and seen uh, a little kid just throwing a complete temper tantrum? Anybody ever seen this go down? Okay, and um, I'm not talking about the one where the moms and dads are trying to do something. You're like, okay, man, these kids are going crazy. Try to do something. But where a parent just advocates total responsibility and the kid's just pounding on the floor and kicking and screaming and knocking people over and all this stuff and the parents don't do anything and you see a crowd kind of looking, mm-hmm, you know, as they go by. Um, what, what, do you think what do you think those other parents are thinking? You think they're thinking good thoughts? about, about the, the parent of the, of the tantrum child? No, no, I don't think so. And here's why. I have a friend of mine uh, from the 95th campus, Paul. He and his wife took their kids to uh, Disney World the past couple of weeks, and they just got back, and he told me all about uh, how exciting it was for them. They just absolutely had a great time. And the reason it was so great, he says, is because his kids were so obedient. 
They did everything they were supposed to do when they asked them to do it. So much, in fact, that at one time they actually had somebody come up to them and say, hey, I just want you to know you're doing a great job as parents because those kids are so well-behaved. Here's the big idea. When the children obey, the parents get the praise. When the children obey, the parents get the praise. God desires for us to live righteously as he is righteous. God loves us so much that he wants us to be the right representative for who he is. When we obey him and the world watches what Christians do, when they look around and see, man, these people really are living the way they're supposed to live. And even when they fall, they repent and they confess and they come right back and they go back to this God again. They say they're sorry and they change and you see things happening with them. And they say that God is loving and these Christians, they love. And they say that God is patient and man, those Christians, they're they so patient. And they say that God is gracious and they are quick to forgive. Always, they just pour grace out. Isn't that, isn't that the way it's supposed to look? Our God is a righteous, righteous God. And it is our role, our privilege to be able to live rightly, to be able to be an example and to be a great representative for who our God actually is. And at this point, the question could come, well, how are we supposed to do this? Because God offered us grace because we weren't even capable of taking care of ourselves. And he offered us this grace. How in the world are we supposed to live righteously now? And you know what? We've already covered it like three or four times already this weekend. Even if you haven't realized it, I want to read it one more time to you in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We read 1 and 2 several times now. Romans chapter 1, uh, 12, verse 2. Let me read this out loud. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will know what God wants you to do, and you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his, real will, his will really is. Who's going to do the work here? God does it. God wants for us to let him transform us into a new person, have our minds renewed. Our God is a righteous God. And he deserves representatives who try to live rightly in pointing to him. Let's pray. Father, we know that in all things, we have not the power to be able to do this in our own. And we thank you that you tell us that you will, you will take care of the work that as long as we let you transform us. God, that you will. Father, we know that there is a, a tension that every believer must live with, this tension that you offer us grace and forgiveness in all things, but that also we should effort to do what is right. We should try to change our lifestyles. We should try to live more connected to the body of Christ. We should live rightly in, in regard to the governing authorities and the rest of the world, and we should live rightly in regards to the other Christians who are around us to our right and to our left. God, we struggle with it all the time. We pray that you will empower us to live rightly, that you will help us in our righteous living because God, you are all who is righteous. God, we know that there is no one righteous, no, not one, but we can be a representative of your righteousness when we point people to you and we allow you to transform us from the inside out. And we pray that would be the mark of our hearts and our lives as a body of believers for the rest of days. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.